Please have open that passage before you, uh, the one that we read uh, a moment ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 on page 1148. At our Christianity Explored course, we use this book. If you could ask God one question, um, we give it out to people and invite them to read it. If they have questions uh, of the Christian faith, questions that they would like to ask of God. So, so some of the questions in there go along the lines of, God, why do you allow suffering? Or what about the followers of other religions? And one of the questions simply asks, God, why do you hate sex? So for many people outside of the church, and for a good number of people maybe inside the church, we imagine that God doesn't like sex very much. At best, he tolerates it. And it's interesting to see what happens when we examine that assumption in the light of the Bible, uh, God's Word. For anyone who's not normally here with us, don't worry. We haven't chosen this subject because we, we thought you were coming. Um, we've already explained that we're, we're doing what we normally and often do here. We're, we're working our way through uh, a long book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians. Today we happen to arrive at chapter uh, 7 of 1 Corinthians. This letter is one that the Apostle Paul wrote about 30 years after Jesus Christ died and returned to heaven. And we have come to regard this letter as part of God's revelation to us. We believe that just as God's Spirit inspired Paul to say what he did when he did, we believe that God still speaks to us by his Spirit when we pay attention to these words uh, today. So let's ask God to help us uh, just as we spend a few moments uh, looking at this material together. Let's pray. Father God, you teach us that your word is useful right across the range of our human experience. We pray that you would come today and teach us, teach us more of who you are, more of who you've created us to be, that we might live better lives for your glory we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's letter to the, the church in Corinth comes in two parts, and you may not notice it, but we're transitioning today into part two. In chapters one to six, Paul addressed matters that he had heard about in a verbal report from the household of Chloe. He mentions that in chapter one, verse 11. So everything that's happened there so far is based on what he's heard by a verbal report from a, a church home group. But now at the first verse of chapter 2, he's saying, now for the matters you wrote about. So there's a letter has been written to Paul from Corinth. And what he does for the rest of, of the letter is respond to those items that were raised in that letter. And he seems to go through them one by one, and you can, you can see it, they're flagged up by a repeated phrase, now about X, now about Y, now about Z. So, for example, in chapter 7, verse 1, he begins on the subject of marriage. In 7, verse 25, he says, now about virgins. In 8, verse 1, he says, now about food sacrificed to idols. In 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gift. So there's a long list of issues that Paul 
is going to try and address in this letter. So what is this first issue that he's trying to address? What, what lies behind what Paul's written that we have just read? He's addressing a scenario where super spiritual people in the church in Corinth were claiming that if you're, if you're truly spiritual, if God's spirit is really alive and well in you, then you'll quit having sex. That was the basic assumption that Paul's responding to. They've been saying for people who are really spiritual, it's good for them not to be sexually active. In a sense, the issue here in chapter six or seven, sorry, is the flip side of the same kind of thinking and the issue raised in chapter six. If you remember, if you were here a fortnight ago, in the second half of chapter six, we found that some men in the Corinthian church were going to prostitutes. And they were arguing that it was okay to do that. And their reason was, we're spirit people. We live on a higher plane. We live in the realm of the spirit. We're not affected by the behavior of our bodies. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter. So it's okay if we go to a prostitute. We noticed a couple of weeks ago when we were last thinking about this, that that's based on a Greek view of the world, a dualistic view of the world, where we split the world in two and say, the spiritual stuff's here, the material stuff's here, and only the spiritual stuff really matters. I can do what I like with my body because that's only the physical stuff. I can go to prostitutes. So that was one outworking of this particular way of thinking. But I can forget about my marriage and my responsibilities there. Turns out to be another outworking, a, a very different one of the same basic principle. Those of us who are spiritual are above the mere earthly existence of others. Marriage belongs to the physical world. It's passing away. It doesn't matter what I give in my marriage. Before we look in detail at how Paul responds to this basic issue, I want you to notice a, a pattern that runs through the chapter that, that shows us what his overall response is. There's a repeated phrase that tells us where he's coming from. Look down at verse 17. Nevertheless, Paul says, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God called him. Look down to verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Look down to verse 24. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. For Paul, being or becoming a spiritual person doesn't absolve you from life's normal responsibilities. We're to remain as we are. Now he means something quite specific by that and it'll only be by working through the detail of the chapter we'll see. Over these next couple of Sunday mornings we'll see how this general principle plays itself out in a number of different situations for different people. One last thing before we start tackling these issues that, that Paul is tackling here. This whole passage is filled with what Paul acknowledges to be his own personal opinion, apart from verse 10, where he does give a command. 
Now, that doesn't mean that it lacks authority. I don't think it means that we can simply disregard it. It simply means that we should understand this part of Paul's letter more in terms of of guidelines and advice rather than commands and read it as such. So let's start then with the, the matters that Paul raises. His advice to married couples in verses 1 to 7. Look at verse 1. When it says there, it's good for a man not to marry, the NIV footnote gives the more accurate reading. The, the scholars pretty much all agree on this. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, this isn't Paul's opinion. Paul's doing here what we found him doing in chapter 6. He's quoting back to the Corinthians the slogan which has been going around the church. And we're going to see as we go on that actually Paul has some sympathy with this position. What he doesn't agree with is the way in which it's been applied. In verse 2, we see that Paul doesn't agree with this slogan being applied to people who are married. He says, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Again, the translations don't help us massively here. Paul's not talking about marriage here when he says having your own wife. The Greek text is talking clearly about sexual activity in a marriage. Paul says each husband should be having sex with his own wife and each wife with her own husband. He's saying no to their slogan in the case of marriage. Paul's addressing these young Christians who are trying to work out how to live the life of Christ but still have the dualistic Greek worldview very much at the front of their thinking. And he says to them, let each married person stay as they are and continue in a full sexual relationship with their spouse. Although he doesn't spell it out, this is the first scenario where he he talks about staying as you are. In verses 3 to 4, in two perfectly balanced sentences, he elaborates on that advice for married couples. He says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. This is is strange language, I think, for us. When Paul talks about fulfilling our marital duty, he implies that married couples are indebted to one another sexually. And before we get carried away and accuse Paul of sexism, notice his emphasis. He's not giving any partner permission to demand sex of the other. That would be entirely contrary to the self-sacrificial life that we're called to as followers of Jesus Christ. His emphasis is not on you owe me, but on I owe you. Sex in Paul's mind isn't something that we take or that we make, but something that we give. It's something that we give to the one that we love. 
In verse 4, in another perfectly balanced pair of sentences, he elaborates further. He says, Christians should continue to offer sex in their marriage because they've given themselves to one another. Again, Paul's not encouraging a, a wife to imagine that she owns her husband or vice versa. He's reminding us that in marriage we give ourselves, including our bodies, to one another. In marriage, I no longer have authority over, over my life. And that includes my body. To do with it as I please. Therefore, a husband will not deprive a wife, nor a wife a husband. If we pause for, for breath there for a moment, that's not the kind of teaching you'd expect if it's true that God hates sex. I wonder, though, is Paul's teaching raising another problem for us? Does it sound like this passage is simply confirming what you've believed all along about the Bible, that it's, it's sexist, that it's chauvinist? If that's your concern this morning, notice the perfect mutuality of what Paul says. He puts sexual relations in a Christian marriage on a much higher plane than you'd find them in most cultures and, and often in the Christian church. Sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. Not here. By outlining the equal rights and the equal responsibilities of both husband and wife, Paul steers us clear of sexism and chauvinism. Don't deprive each other, he says in verse 5. Don't take away what rightfully belongs to the other. And he gives one exception. He says when a husband and wife might not be sexually active, they might set aside their sexual relationship for a time and if they both agree, two conditions. But even then, he encourages them to come back together. He gives a reason, a compelling one, if one's needed, why a married couple should keep their sexual relationship alive so that Satan will not tempt you. Don't deny one another sex, Paul says, because when you do, you put one another at the ready disposal of Satan, the great tempter. We began this morning with the question, God, why do you hate sex? And we've discovered that, that God doesn't. In, in God's design, sex is meant to, to form, to express, and to strengthen the deep union of a woman and a man in Christian marriage, in lifelong marriage. We've been learning in the previous chapters of 1 Corinthians that the Bible is against sex without marriage. But we're learning here in this passage that the Bible is also against marriage without sex. Maybe you've been paying attention to this Bible reading this morning and listening to me trying to, to preach the passage and you're wondering what all the fuss is about. So long as we don't make that specific mistake that they made in Corinth, that unhealthy super spirituality, we'll be all right. We won't have any problems. Maybe you're not married or, or recently married and you're wondering why any married couple 
would need to be encouraged to keep their sexual relationship alive. Is Paul's teaching not, not superfluous, at least for us in the beginning of the 21st century? The truth is that there are many factors uh, that kill or are threatened to kill the, the romance and the sex in our marriages. Exhaustion, especially when there are young children in the house. Stress at work or regarding finance. Unaddressed hurts or grudges that have accumulated over time. Illness or depression or, or simply over busyness that a couple don't have any time to be together in an uninterrupted way. All of these factors and, and many more result in, in a couple missing out on this good gift of God. In verse 7, Paul brings this first item to a conclusion. And he says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift one has that. It's most likely here that Paul's talking about the gift of celibacy that he has. A freedom from the desire or the need for sexual fulfillment that makes it possible for him to live an unmarried life. So for Paul, he's willing to say that his personal preference is for singleness. That's, that's what Paul says. He'll say it again later in this chapter. And he recognizes that that's a gift from God. But he recognizes that God gives others a different gift. So when the Corinthians were advocating celibacy in marriage, they might have been pointing at Paul and they might have been saying, Paul, you support our position. Sure, you're celibate yourself. Paul says no. Celibacy is for the celibate. Sexual activity in faithful marriage is, is a different kind of gift. Celibacy is a gift, and sex within a marriage is a gift. So at the end of this first section, Paul affirms his own position of celibacy and singleness. And at the same time, he says that those who are married should not be celibate or should not go towards singleness. Let me close this morning. I'm very conscious that what I've been dealing with here in a very general way is a subject that's intensely personal. Every husband is different and every wife and every marriage. So how we apply Paul's teaching will vary from one couple to the next. Maybe you find these things difficult to talk about in your marriage. One of the commentators I was reading uh, this week suggested that a reader might raise the issue with the, their husband or, or their wife by encouraging them to read the, the chapter that you've just been reading uh, and then start a conversation by saying, about that book, most of you won't get a chance to, to read uh, the book that I'm talking about, but we've read this morning's passage together and you've heard me trying to teach it. Maybe our way into that conversation starter about that sermon. 
People talk about Sunday sermons sometimes after Sundays. I've heard they do that. Maybe not very much, but once in a while. Maybe there's a, an opportunity here uh, to start a conversation that, that might just be very beneficial to, to both partners in a marriage. Let's pray just now and ask for God's help. Father God, we know that everything that you've created is good. When you looked on your creation as you'd formed it, you looked on it and said that it was very good. And Lord, you've created us male and female. You've given us to each other in marriage. And you've given us the gift of sex. Lord, we pray that you would help all those in marriages here today to enjoy all that you give us in this good gift. Give us your grace and your humility and your selflessness in this part of our lives as in every other. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was conscious as I was preaching this morning that we were focusing very much on part of the congregation here. Um, if you've had a chance to read ahead or, or paid attention as we read, you'll, you'll see that the rest of the chapter deals with people who are single and people who are widowed, and we're going to get a chance uh, to, to think about those in, in the future too.